how do you feel about um, people putting up Christmas decorations right now? I think that people should do whatever makes them happy. But just for my own self, I don't care when Christmas ornaments go up as long as it's cold and nippy out. What weirds me out is when people put up their lights and their Christmas tree because it's snowing. And then for the next four days, it's like 24 degrees outside and it confuses me and it makes me feel resentful that I had to have all those Christmas emotions prematurely. Yeah. So I'm not telling people what to do. I'm just saying my person, which is me, Mm -hmm. doesn't like that emotional roller coaster. Well, I don't think, I mean... So many people I know put up their Christmas tree November 1st. Halloween decorations go down and Christmas. And I'm just like, no. But for me, I think you don't do anything. For me, December 1st is like, I will start tolerating it. But do not do anything before Remembrance Day. Like, that's my big thing. I'm like, that's what you should be focusing on. That's what you should remember. Go out and get your poppy. All that. Well, what I also find kind of weird and sad is that the grocery stores are selling those adorable planters of evergreen pieces and stuff. But by the time Christmas gets here, those things are going to be dead and ugly as all hell. Hell. You should should come down here and socially distant walk in the woods with me and get your like free range evergreen decorations. Yes. 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 Please do that. And how are you? I had a dream the other night that... About me? Yes. I had a dream that you were writing a Christmas story, like a... Like Hallmark? Like a short story, a Christmas-inspired story. And you were telling me about it with such enthusiasm. And you were like, you should do it too. Or maybe not. Maybe I did the same thing I did with... stories Mm. I may have just gone I'll do it if you do it and then um I woke up like in my dream this is the weirdest thing in my dream I was so inspired I was so excited and I could physically it was visceral I could feel the inspiration and the motivation and the excitement to just get to writing it and I woke up with that feeling. So I like got out of bed, like, yes, this is going to be the best day ever. I'm going to write my Christmas story. And then like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, and then I was kind of bummed out because I thought that sucks. It would have been so much cooler if I'd had a real idea and was that motivated and inspired and that I had actually run downstairs to get to work on that instead. Here's the thing. Are you breaking up with me? No. Okay. (laughs) Writing Christmas. Oh, how about you introduce our person? So we're very lucky and I'm so excited to have a Canadian historical fiction author, Genevieve Graham. Um, I discovered her books a few years ago and started following her and then totally fangirled when she followed me back on Instagram. Like I remember dying best-selling Canadian author yes 11 weeks in a row stop it stop it stop it stop it yeah that's one more than 10 (laughs) 
that is a million, that is a million more weeks than I have been on that list. Yeah, me too. You know what? She is such a sweet, oh my God. interesting human being. And she's I'm so down to earth. Yeah. I'm pretty excited for our listeners to hear about all the amazing stuff she's been up to. So how are you ladies? Excellent. Excellent. So how do you two know each other? Or do um, I start reading. <laughs> I started reading uh, Genevieve's books, and I just reached out one day because I like fell in love with her writing, and then I think just she fell in love with this one. Am I right? Yes. No. Wait. No. It was uh, come uh, come from away. Okay, this one. Yes. Yeah. It was that's, amazing. That's for your time period, isn't it, Megan? Yes. Oh, it was such a beautiful story. I like devoured it so quick. Well, I'm curious to see what you think of the next one. Yeah. It's going to be, it's very different. It's yeah. much more complex. It's the most complex one I've done. So we'll see. E- even more than the Forgotten Home Child? Yeah, because the Forgotten Home Child told itself. Okay. That one was easy because I just followed the real history. But I mean, it wasn't easy because it tore me apart to write it, but it was, the story was right there. But this one grew. This one grew a lot while I was working on it. So I hope you like it. I'm sure I will. It's um, a time period, though. It starts in 33 and ends in 45. Oh, I'm down with that. I like that. Yeah, that's why I was asking you for uh, fashion advice. Yeah, <laughs> and dancing. And music, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know what the Forgotten Home Child is, but I don't think Jennifer knows. I don't know if you want to explain it a little bit to Jennifer and to our listeners as well, because it's big. The Forgotten Home Child is based on the true story of over 120,000 destitute children that were shipped from the streets of England to Canada between 1869 and 1948 as indentured servants. And this is a history that really nobody knows out here. We, we've never, basically never been taught it. And, but nowadays with genealogy being what it is, we have learned that over 12% of Canadians are descended from the children, which is over 4 million people most of whom have no idea. So it's a it's a pretty huge story. Um, 75% of the children were abused or neglected or killed. And um, 25% lived great lives. They, they found they had families that were good to them, took care of them. Um, some even sort of adopted them. But as far as the um, other 75% was, it was completely the opposite. So that's, that's what the British, the, the Forgotten Home Child is all about. Wow. I did really well. I was so happy. Did you, Megan, have you seen the numbers on the book? Yeah. And I mean, I've been seeing your posts and the interviews and everything. I mean, I am so happy for you. Thank you. It's been a ride. Yeah. Uh, Jen, the, the book came out the day that I met Megan it, face-to-face. It came out number one um, on the Canadian bestsellers um, on its very first week. And then it stayed number one for 11 weeks. Amazing. I never expected anything like that. And as I mean, it's obviously good for me, but it's, it's mostly good for the home children descendants. And that's who I was writing the book for. So they are very happy. I've never really written fiction and I've only written short stories that were mostly auto like personal essays. And, Mm -hmm. but I would imagine that a ton of the fun of writing this kind of stuff is is doing the research and finding out I mean you get to build on it yourself but you get to do so much research and uncover so many fascinating bits and pieces and like you said a lot of stuff that people didn't even know about which is extra exciting that's what I'm working on mostly um I love historical fiction I've always been a historical fiction 
groupy. And uh, I've read so much of it that I just decided one day I was going to start trying to write it. I'd never written anything beyond sort of a thank you note before then. Um, but it was it was just something that I, I wanted to try. And I thought, let's see how it goes. And I was reading a lot of Scottish history at the time, Outlander in particular. Yes. And uh, I was a little tiny bit obsessed with the whole Scottish historical stuff. And so I, I wrote three books that were published by Penguin, which are no longer in print, but they published them, which blew my mind. And then in 2008, my family and I moved to Nova Scotia. And all of a sudden, I was surrounded by Canadian history. Um, I've lived in Toronto. I grew up in Toronto, and then we moved to Calgary. But I never really felt the history until I got here to Halifax. And there's just hundreds of years of, of real life history. Most of the historical fiction that I have read is based either in Scotland or England or Europe or in the States. And there just really isn't commercial historical fiction about our country that I've found. So that's that's my mission now to find stuff. And yeah, the research is amazing. Um, I'm not a historian. I slept through history class. And, uh, <laughs> I knew nothing. And um, so now I'm working on finding more and more stuff that we don't know. The, the way I research it, I think, I look at history and uh, Megan's probably heard me say this before, but I look at history as if it's black and white. It's not very personal. It's not very tangible when it's just a black and white photo of something. To me, um, the black and white photo takes on a personality when it's colorized. Mm. So my parallel to that when I'm writing is I start with the black and white history and then the details that I research are the colors. And that's what brings it to life for me. Now, I know um, when I met you in Montreal and I, I listened to you um, speak at the school, um, you had talked about your first three books, how you were not happy with the covers. Yes. So you must be very happy with these covers then, I assume? I love, Simon Schuster Canada has been doing an amazing job for my covers. The first three covers, um, you can still find them in used bookstores or on Amazon for used, but they just were not the same as my stories. Like the, the books were pretty heavy hitting Scottish historical with some fantasy in it. And the covers looked basically, and nothing against Harlequin, but that's what they looked like. <laughs> exactly. I, I didn't know how to write Harlequin. I had no idea how to write that stuff. So it was, to me, it was a bad choice on their part because with that cover, the people that, they were looking for something specific. They were looking for that Harlequin type. Exactly. Um, I was providing them with a pretty rough history <laughs> that they probably didn't expect. So, yeah. But Simon Schuster, right off the bat, they've been, um, like my first four books, they look very romantic, which is fine with me because a lot of my stories are connected by love stories because I, I think that's like pretty human emotion that will co connect us all to the history. Um, but lately with A Forgotten Home Child and now with Letters Across the Sea, they're much more realistic and they're just, um, they're staying on top of the trend and they're, I think they're beautiful. Yeah, I love them. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking at your covers right now. <laughs> and it, before you said Harlequin romance, that's the first, I looked, I was like, yeah, they look like romance. Like, like you wouldn't, I wouldn't guess right away that there was like also history behind it. And yeah. then the mood completely shifts <laughs> for the forgotten home child and letters across the sea because I think what's different about them too is that they actually evoke the imagery evokes some sort of emotion as well yes yes it's very personal all the research that I did for the book was very personal because I spoke with the descendants 
and I have surveys from the descendants themselves. So it was personal to them. It was their parents or grandparents that went through this and it became very personal to me. So when they came up with this cover, I just, it was just perfect. Now, did, were you able to meet anybody or is there any survivors of um, any? There are, a few, there are a few left. And um, I mean, the last one shipped over officially were 1948. So, I mean, they'd be 70s, 80s, 90s. Okay. There's, there's a few of them. I was asked out to, um, to the annual reunion of the British Home Children group in Truro, Nova Scotia back in 2018. And uh, th there was one home child there, but the rest were all descendants. And um, they're just very, very keen to share the story, you know, to educate us in what we should know. And there's another guy, his name's George. He lives in Ontario somewhere, but I can't remember where. And he just turned 97. And every year we all send him a birthday card. So he ends up with like hundreds of cards. It's very oh, cute. cute. <laughs> This, this year he had a drive-by. Everybody had the, you know, like the COVID drive-by birthday parties. Yeah. So there was, <laughs> it was pretty neat to watch. Oh, nice. Um, out of your first, or oh, not the first four books, but your four books, like Come From Away, Tides of Honor, At the Mountain's Edge, and Promises to Keep, which of the four is your favorite? You're not supposed to ask that. They're like my baby. I know, right? But, but it's Tides of Honor. It's always yeah. Honor. Until now, uh, Forgotten Home Child has, has pulled into the number one position, but it was Tides of Honor. Yeah. I love Danny Baker. I have a huge crush on Danny Baker. And uh, <laughs> I was so happy with Come From Away that I was going to be able to write about him again because I hadn't planned on a sequel. And when that happened, I was so happy to see Danny again. Okay, I have two serious questions. No, that's a lie. <laughs> the first question, what, do you have more than one child? I have two daughters. My husband and my two daughters are downstairs. My daughters are 20 and 22, so they don't technically live here, but they still come to eat. <laughs> I have three three daughters in their 20s, so I, I hear you. I was just going to ask you, like, which daughter is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> it's just us and our 90 million listeners. My dog. <laughs> <laughs> my real question because I had this experience recently with a short story that I wrote and I just became so infatuated with one of the characters that I would like wake up in the morning and I wanted to go and write to like, like you said you had a crush on this guy. Yes. <laughs> I had a crush on all of them. Do you get that feeling like you miss them when you're not writing about them and you, you're like you, you want to hurry up and get your stuff out of the way so you can go sit down and actually like be there again? Definitely. And, and at night, sometimes I've been, when I'm working on a scene and it's not working, I'll end up staying up late with them and they'll be talking to me about these things. And, um, and I, I kind of model all my characters after movie stars in my head because, and I, I justify it by telling my husband, I need to watch all of their movies so that I can watch the way they move and describe it. You know, so it's all business related. But, uh, I am working. I am working. Yeah. So it's been really, it's, it's hard work. I've been talking a lot with the guy in my new book. <laughs> it's pretty serious then. Yeah. He's, he's a pretty serious guy. He's pretty cute. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's Mikhail Huisman. I don't know how to pronounce that. Huisman from the Guernsey potato. Oh field. yeah, yeah. He's does in your, across the sea. So does your husband read your books? Um, I read them to him. 
when I get the finals back, I read them to him. He knows, he didn't know a lot about the Forgotten Home Child when I wrote it, except that I was crying all the time. And um, then I eventually read it to him and he was like, oh, I get it. Okay. Um, but uh, the other books, I, I like to read them out loud to him because it's kind of fun as an author to hear your own words out loud because I often forget what I've written. Mm-hmm. And I think, did I do that? And Megan, you know that because when you yeah. write books, you're like, wow, I did that. Oh, okay. <laughs> or, oh, I did that. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, who did that? Couldn't have been me. I have to read them to him in pieces, though, because he falls asleep. I used to read him Tolkien and because uh, nobody had ever read to him before. So I read him The Hobbit and then I read him Lord of the Rings. And by the end of that, I think he was so tired of my voice, he just got used to falling asleep so. <laughs> I was like oh that's so romantic and then yeah. until he started falling asleep <laughs> it started out romantic and then all of a sudden you know when somebody just jerks and you go oh you were sleeping <laughs> <laughs> what what happened just now in the book you don't know ah <laughs> I'm not going back. you've lost those pages I'm not going back and what about your girls do they read your books um my older daughter read Tides of Honor and one night around 11 o'clock, I heard this squawk out of her bedroom saying, she did what? And she was so <laughs> mad at me. She hasn't gone back to, and she hasn't read them. And my other daughter, she doesn't read fiction. So she hasn't read any of them yet. I will pin her down one day. <laughs> I don't know if you said it. Did you say how, um, how you came across this information in the first place about the the forgotten the the children did you was this something that you were looking for and had heard of already or did it just fall into your lap how did that happen well I'm always looking for Canadian history that's going to hook me um something that I don't know and something that you know is is moving or is important and um I don't remember what I was like. I, I go scrolling through everything and all different websites and Facebook and whatever different pages and lots of things pop up, but they don't all grab me. And this one, I, I read it and I, I read about the 120,000 children being sent as, as servants, but I hadn't even realized that it was a Canadian story. So I was reading it going, wow, I've never heard of this. And then they were shipped here. So there was really no question for me that I had to write that story. Um, I mean, I feel really lucky that I that I was the one to write it. It should have been written a long time ago. And there are other books written about the home children, but most of them are, um, I've never been one to pull the punches. So I will give it to you as it actually was. And the stories that I shared about the children were very, um, they weren't gratuitous, but they were graphic in most cases. And um, they had to be told that way in order to get the story across. But a lot of the stories that are written are smoothed down, you know, they're gentled a little bit to make it easier on the reader. I don't make it easy on the reader. I just, I just write it as it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you happen to know uh, why here, why Canada that they were sent uh, to? Well, Canada was in need. Um, back then we had, it was, post-industrial revolution in the in England. So they had lots of people living in the city. We had lots of people that were breaking out of the city and that were living on farms and stuff that had terrible conditions and um, terrible soil. Like you, you just couldn't get a farm going out there sometimes. And they would have large families so that they would have lots of helpers. 
but the mortality rate was really bad for kids out there too. So they would have big families and all the children would die before age five. And um, so they were really in need. And then when the, when the, when the scheme started up, um, the, the farmers were offered children for $3 a head and they were in such need. They just said, absolutely. Send me, send me a child. And um, yeah, that's how it ended up. Wow. It was, it was actually a, it was supposed to be a good thing. It was supposed to be a win-win-win because it was supposed to um, help the farmers here and the houses here and help the help everybody and also bring in new people, right, to, to expand our population because we were pretty small back then. Um, it was supposed to help the people of England because their streets, London, Liverpool, and then up in Glasgow and all over the places, they were, they were overcrowded with poor kids. It was like um, it was Dickens all over the place and the, the kids were in trouble. Um, and for the kids, they were offered, they were told they'd be given um, food, lodging, clothing, um, education. They were told that they, they would get all of those things and very few of them did. So, mm -hmm. yeah, pretty rough. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever I, once, well, you said you cried a lot. Oh, <laughs> did you, did you ever once just like, or many times just walk away and be like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't keep. Yeah. Actually, this was the weirdest book for me when I was writing it. Um, my husband and I were renting a house. We were, we built the house that we're in now and it needed six months um, before it would be built. So we rented a house and it was right on the sea, like right on the sea, right on the rocks. You could feel the spray coming up and the storms would always blow in. The lobster boats would be there. It was it was really great. And I really got lost in it. I, I started playing really sad music all the time. Why? I don't know. Like, come on. That's just the last thing I need was sad music. But I would play it and I would sink into this and I would write and write and write. And I actually wrote the whole skeleton for the book in seven weeks, which is pretty ridiculous. Wow. Um, but it was just, it just became such a part of me. Um, and yeah, it was, I wrote all the time. My husband doesn't mind. He watches news. So he's like, oh, she's working over there. <laughs> you, you just described like the most, the, the perfect, like the dream, what everyone thinks a writer should have. Is that, that the, the ocean waves crashing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I didn't know that I needed it. I had no idea I needed it. Uh, I, I was looking forward to staying there because I knew it would be quiet, but I had no idea that it would do that to me like it would take me away and open up whatever channels I needed opened and it was it was a magical experience I couldn't believe it of course the book didn't end up the way it was after seven weeks it grew and grew and grew and and um but it the basic black and white story was there just from that time I wish I could go back there now <laughs> I was just gonna ask you actually um because Megan and I were just talking about this um, a couple of days ago about when we're watching a TV show or reading a book that we're deeply attached to that Megan was saying she feels very distraught. And so do I. When when the series is finished, you've watched every episode, you're you're you feel like you're just going through a breakup. And I was telling her that when I have really favorite books that I just love so much, I can't bring myself sometimes 
to read the last couple of pages. Like sometimes I'll wait weeks before I bring myself to just, it's like I'm saying goodbye and I can't, I just, I can't do that. I, I was curious when you're writing, like, how does that feel when you know, like, this is your, this is it. You're getting to the end of the, of the story. It's, it is hard. I, I want to get to the end of the story, obviously. And I want, because then I can go back and work on it again. I go through a book so many times before it even touches my editor and then it comes back again. But um, yeah, I miss them all the time. The children in The Forgotten Home Child, um, they just became so much of a part of me and um, all the things that they went through. Um, you're just gonna have to read it, Jen, because it was I'm very gonna read it. <laughs> But it, it was, um, it's, it became a part of me and knowing I was getting to the end was, it was hard, but I needed it to end. But I do miss them. Like when I, like I said, when I was able to go and write Come From Away and see Danny Baker from Tides of Honor again, I was very happy because I mm. still see them and I still get to, once in a while, I listen to the audiobooks just to get a little taste of it again, just to feel it. Cause I'm, oh, nice. I might create them, but they're my friends. So of course. I, should I know what to get more, I should make more friends, I guess, in real life. <laughs> oh, these no. Are no. These books <laughs> are much better. <laughs> Megan, and I, Megan and I are always saying that we find ourselves much more interesting than a lot of other people. Anyway. <laughs> Especially when you're a writer, a creator, you get to create all the f- perfect friends you and lovers and, and whatever. Yeah, and enemies too. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Create the bad guys too. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine I would, I've, I've never published a book. I would imagine, I think I would probably go through like a grieving, like after the publisher Yes. After it's done and I can't work on, I would imagine that I would go through like a little bit of mourning after that. Yes. Actually, CBC wrote an article about me a couple of years ago after Promises to Keep. So that was back in, when was that? That was in 2018. Because it says, why does she grieve when she finishes a book? Because I miss them. So. (laughs) (laughs) When you're writing, do you know how you want the book to end or do you have an idea or do you just go chapter by chapter and see where your characters take you? Am I a plotter or a pantser? That's it. <laughs> I, I wish I was a plotter. Um, I've, I'm as organized with my writing as I am with my life, which is not. Um, <laughs> but I, fortunately with historical fiction, there's certain anchor points, right? Like I have to stick to the history so I can't get totally lost. Um, every book is pretty much different. I don't think I've ever known the ending before until this book I knew most of what the ending was going to be. And the next book I, I knew, but um, this book was different because I wrote the dual timelines. I had um, Winnie was 97 years old at the beginning and at the end of the book. So I knew it had to end in her perspective and um, that made it easier to know where it was headed. Mm-hmm. But most of the time I have no idea. I sort of follow them along and quite often I get on completely the wrong track and I have to delete everything and start all over again. But it's, I, I've never, I write a lot of things that don't come into the books, but I never feel like any of that is wasted. Same with the research. I research a ton of stuff that I never, ever used, but I still feel like it helped me be a part of the story and, and feel it and experience it better. So when I delete chapters in big chunks, I save it all. Yeah. And I, I don't believe in deleting because yeah. I think it was written for a purpose. It still hurts, though, taking it out, even it if it's going does. into a different file. You're like, oh, it sure does. Oh, I worked so hard on that. Yeah. 
<laughs> or when you have like the big red circle, do I really need this? And you're like, oh God, do I? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, and you know what? Sometimes like I've had my editor take out sections and uh, and she and I have a great relationship. She's an amazing editor and she'll send back stuff. And most of the time I'm like, oh yes, that makes it so much easier and so much cleaner. And I was trying to get poetic here and that was a little over the edge and stuff. But I have gone back and rewritten stuff stuff that she's deleted because I know where it belonged and she oh, never argues with me she, it's always teamwork thing oh that's such a nice relationship <laughs> yeah I'm very lucky she's yeah. terrific how long have you been writing for um I am 55 now and I was 42 what <laughs> <laughs> how did that yeah. happen um I just decided one day I was tired of just reading and I wanted to see if I could do it <laughs> yeah, I was talking with a bunch of uh, grade five kids last week online. It was so cute. I've never done that before. And they were all in their classroom and I was Zooming. And one of them said, um, he said, how old are you? And I said, well, how old do I look? And he said, 28. I said, yes, that's how old I am. But also I didn't start <laughs> writing until I was 42. <laughs> I for, so I was making them do the math, but... <laughs> Well, I, I never thought about being a writer. I think most people know from the beginning. Most people that I know have said I've, they've written or told stories all their lives, and I never did. Um, I'm kind of glad because I, I didn't chase this down. The way I write now, I can do 10, 12-hour days constantly because I get so into it. And had I done that all my life, I probably would have missed a lot of things. But um, at this stage, my girls are grown up. Um, I have the time to do it and I'm not missing anything. Wow. That's amazing. I'm so impressed. Not just because you just suddenly in your forties thought maybe you would not just be the reader, but be the writer and then became like a best selling author. Who knew? (laughs) But also that I have gone through phases where I was just creating and so immersed in it and, and wanting to do nothing else, but you can start with coffee in the morning like that and then next thing you know it's like midnight and you're still working on the same thing and your eyes are like killing you and it's beautiful what you're doing and there's such immense satisfaction in it but I have one time worked on like some music I was recording for so many days in a row that a friend came to the door to drop something off and he was like oh my gosh are you okay and I was like yeah and he said are you sick I said no why he said you look great I was like (laughs) (laughs) I just <laughs> showered or left the house in several days. The songs oh, yeah. that I wrote were brilliant, but uh, <laughs> like, my friends were like, You look like garbage. What's happening? Thank you. Thanks. Come again. Um, yeah, I, uh, I lose track of time all the time. My husband is uh, a seasonal worker, he's a landscaper, so he only works during the spring, summer, fall. And in the winter, he's home and he cooks for me and he takes care of me. Ooh. But even when he's out, um, if he's out working hard all day, right around five o'clock, I will have forgotten to eat breakfast, lunch, or prepare dinner. There's no chance I've got dinner prepared, but a glass of wine will slide in front of me. He's telling me, this is the end of the day. You need to come downstairs and now be, be human again. So, and I'll just look at him. Oh yeah, I didn't realize <laughs> I haven't moved in eight hours. <laughs> oh, he's such a sweetheart. He is. Yeah, he's a good guy. How long have you guys been married for? Uh, 28 years. I met him in a chairlift lineup. How's that? I was uh, 
I went out to visit a friend. I was living in Toronto and I went out to visit a friend who was transferred to Calgary. And she and I were supposed to go skiing, but she had to go to work. So she stood me up and I was skiing by myself in Banff. And then I met him in a chairlift lineup and he called single. And I said, well, I didn't say it then, but that was the last time he ever got to say single. <laughs> I just, just pictured you <laughs> chairlift lineup, just turn around, look at this guy, this cute man standing there. And he's just like single. Yeah, exactly. It. But then he was like, he told me later, well, it was either you or this really obese guy. And so I picked you. <laughs> okay, good. That's good. <laughs> you should edit out the first part of this story. And when people ask you how you met your husband, you should just say that he had to choose between you and a really obese guy. And he chose you. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> That's a good plan. I'll bring that up. <laughs> I want to see the chairlift lineup. Like, I want to see that in a love story one day. <laughs> yeah, I write history, so it's not going to work. No, it's it's chairlift back in my <laughs> Technically, it's history. It's just maybe <laughs> not true. the history you write about. True. People so skied back in the 40s. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to work on it. All right. <laughs> that would be funny. Now, your first three books, they were like in the 1700s, correct? Yes, they were 1745. So right in the Battle of Culloden or Culloden, Culloden. I've been corrected so many different ways that I can't remember how to say it. Um, yeah, those books came because of my crush on Outlander and everything that Diana Gabaldon had written. Yes. And um, it, it took sort of from the end of that battle um, that was in her first book then I took my characters from that point and I sent them all on their own um, travels. They, are, they were connected. The first one was um, about, it was about two children who um, from birth had known that there was somebody else there with them, somewhere in their mind, in their soul. They could hear them, they could sense them. So there was a lot of that kind of magic in it. And as they got older, the two of them started hearing more, clearly what the other was saying and maturing together. But she was in the Carolinas and he was in Scotland. So they had never met. And then when after the battle, he was sent to the States to be as a prisoner. And so she, they were actually in the same continent and they came closer and closer. And it's an adventure story. Um, and then the second story was about his brother. And then the third story was about her sister. So they're all connected and it needs to have a fourth. I just haven't written it yet. <laughs> and was it hard moving from the 1700s to the thirties and forties? It was easier. It was way easier because the history that you can study, because these days you can ask people if they have memories, if there's something they'd like to share. Whereas back then, not a lot of people from the 1740s around to ask. So <laughs> it, it's much easier and the history is more clear. And it's more relatable. Right. When you're writing in the 1700s, you get to know it well enough that it is relatable, but I would say it's much easier. I'm reading a book right now by Sydney Pike. Um, she wrote uh, The Forgotten Kingdom and The Lost Queen. Oh, they're in like 500 AD and they're oh. incredible, incredible stories. It's like the lead up to Merlin. Um, and uh, I don't know how she did any of this research. It's so so old it's amazing so I highly recommend that series and do you ever have to like stop yourself from researching where you go 
I really don't need to know when this tea was actually manufactured and in exactly what town and or do you just go no I need to do it all and most of the time I do it all but then there's you know if I'm running into too many dead ends then I realize that I was not meant to do that um everything that flows is meant to be there I think but if it's taking me a week to figure out the brand of tea then there's a bit of an issue there so yeah it's I don't want it to take away but at the time it feels very very important it's something I have to know except I don't really have to know um like what is your process do you get up like you said you get up in the morning you skip breakfast you skip lunch you wait for the glass of wine but in between that Is it, um, you know, do you listen to music? Because like when I write, I can't listen to music. I find it's too distracting. I'll find myself almost singing to the songs and then I'm just staring at a blank page. Yeah, if, if I was going to listen to music, it would be, um, I, the only thing I have listened to is some of those um, weird focus things. Like uh, they play these weird beats and then it's just like sound. It's not music, it's just sounds and the concentration things. Um, but my degree is in classical music. And so some people might be able to write to classical music, but I know all the pieces and I know, you know, which instrument is sharp and flat and I know all these things. And so that would totally take me away from it. And um, I've listened to some of the music, like some of the stuff that you sent me. Um, I've been listening to that to get me in the mood and um, figure out where the character should be but that's not to help me write it's to help me feel where I am so yeah I, I it has to be quiet for me if it's dark and rainy which is my favorite time to write then I always have a candle going uh tea uh, some nice chocolate <laughs> and uh yeah it's just it's very quiet I like it quiet um it's hard um these days I've been doing a lot of promotion stuff so I it usually ends up that my mornings are spent doing promotions and administration stuff and working with my editor. And then the afternoon I, I go crazy and just lose myself. That's usually how it ends up. If it was up to me, I would write constantly, but there's a lot of things I have to do now that I hadn't planned on. Yeah. What about you, Jen? Do you, I mean, I guess you can't really listen to music when you're writing music or no, but when I'm writing stories and essays, I listen to music. I'm the exact opposite, but I think it's almost for the same reason also, I studied jazz in school, which is like, you know, the opposite of classicals. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I think for me, um, there is, I have a lot of animals in the house and I'm not the only one in the house. And when I'm writing and I live on a really busy street, like there's just so much noise and stuff around me. And I get very distracted by all of that. But if I can put my headphones on and just have music playing, preferably without lyrics, but that, first of all, blocks out all the other sounds. And then, yeah, depending on what I'm writing, sometimes it's like it, it, if I find music that suits the the mood of that style or that theme or whatever, it sort of transports me to that place. So if I'm writing like a love scene, then I will, I want to be listening to music that evokes those feelings in me. And then I feel sort of transported. I definitely can't just put on the radio and listen to music because if I'm writing an intimate scene between two people and there's like, I don't know, I'm walking on sunshine, oh, like in the background, I'm just like, ah, <laughs> or if I'm writing like a tearful, like something really emotional or something like that, I, I don't, I don't want to be influenced by whatever the music is around yeah. me, but for sure, it, for me, it blocks out the rest of the world. And I'm really a, a professional escape artist 
<laughs> not not physically but more in the mental health department <laughs> so so putting on like music helps me just like not not be present and I can just sink into what I'm writing instead so yeah that's what I found with those concentration videos so I just go on to YouTube but Spotify too and they just have like concentration stuff and there's no melody there's no beat there's just like these weird tones and I, I tried it. Actually, I started it when I was writing The Forgotten Home Child, and I, I just wanted to get away from everything else. And it was really, really good. I'm going to try that. That sounds cool. Yeah. I've never even heard of it before. The one that I like, I think it's called Red Green Productions. That's, that's the one that's worked for me most of the time, because sometimes they throw in beats or they throw in something vaguely melodic. And then then I'm like, oh, I just lost my track. I don't know where I'm <laughs> Things are just calming and <laughs> you lose really lose track of time when you just realize you've been sitting there staring out the window. <laughs> so so most so you start the day working on doing actual business stuff before you get into the juicy part of your day. But do you think that let's see, if you've been writing for since you're in your 40s, so I don't know how much it has changed, but I'm just curious if it has changed a lot, the amount that you have to do from like a promotion and marketing point of view, because I know that a lot of artists are like struggle quite a bit with the fact that now they have to do a lot of that work themselves. And that didn't used to be a thing a long time ago. Your, your agent, your manager, whoever was working on that stuff. And you just had to do your art and be like, here, I did what you said. And now artists have to hustle. Yes. Well, when I, when I wrote the first three, I was published in New York. And uh, I was a very small fish in that sea. Nobody was going to promote me. They, they did their part. They put me in the bookstores and they, they did whatever they said they were going to do. But nobody would ever heard of me. So I taught myself everything to do with promotion. I was on a whole bunch of um, writers' websites and following all these people and learning everything I could about self-promoting, going and setting up blog tours for the first time and meeting all these people. And I was so scared. And um, and then I, when I was picked up by Simon & Schuster, and they, they're like, Genevieve, stop doing so much stuff. This is kind of like what we do. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's things like... Um, well, I've sent them lists and lists of bloggers that I love to work with, bookstagram people and all these. I've got, oh, look at these guys. These I love working with these girls and they would love to do. They're like, yeah, we already have that. You just need to chill a little bit. Get back to writing. And I'm always on their case. And I think they like it because they know I'm enthusiastic, but I think I probably overstep my bounds all the time. But I'm also coming up with new things. Like I've started a video series on my own and they were like, you did what? But it's, it's been great. It's really worked out. And um, I'm, I'm doing more and more of that. So it's things that I, I think you have to be, if you're a creator and you realize you have to promote, then you have to really dedicate yourself to doing it. And you have to think originally. You have to think outside of the box. Um, the whole creative and crazy thing. I, was, uh, I came up with a crazy creative idea. And I, I think you have, it's not that you are crazy or creative. I think it's a melding of both. But I came up with a promotion on my birthday in December. I'm going to, um, I'm going to put something on my Facebook page and I'm going to say, I'm going to have a fireside chat. And it's sort of a gift from me to you guys. And I'm going to put up a, 
a survey, which one of my books do you want me to read from? And then once we've narrowed it down, which chapter do you want me to read? And then we'll have a little chat and I'm trying to figure out if I can get a fireplace burning behind me on Zoom. And I oh, just, I love it's that. Just, like, you know, I have some giveaways and whatever else I can do. It's just something different. And I yeah. think that my readers, ex they expect that from me because I'm not really a, I'm not really quiet when it comes to promotions. I'm always trying to reach people and do things to touch people because I, I want them to love the stories. Mm -hmm. They have to put up with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at the beginning of COVID, you were doing, you were a rock star. I mean, you were <laughs> like, I remember one that I got to sit in on because I was still not able to work um, that you had your daughter on the chat, making sure she was getting everybody's questions and like <laughs> sliding them to you. And you, you know, it was great. Yeah. It was neat. I was in California when everything happened. I was visiting my, my mother and her husband go down to California every year for two months. They did. And so this is my one and only chance that my husband and I got to go down there and just relax. And the whole world was starting to heat up at the time, but we had no idea. So we're just hanging out. And then I got a message from my publicist saying, we'd like you to do a video. We'd like you to read a chapter and then we're going to put it online. And I was like, no, I will not talk to a camera. You don't ask me to do that. And then I thought, well, I see how this is going and I might as well. And so then I was like, now I need to talk to everybody. And it just kept going and going. So the series that you were at, Megan, was that was the scariest thing I've ever done. I reached out, I reached out to five other historical fiction authors that are all major big sellers. And I said, I really just want to have us chat and uh, talk about our books and talk talk to um, the people on my page and put it on your page and the author community is so supportive of one another and every level I've been at I've discovered people at that level that are willing to help and um, so when I do these videos with these people it they ask me how can they help me and so it, it works around a lot um, I did another one after the one you were at Megan and it was Kate Quinn and Pam Jenoff who are legends. They're just legendary. And um, I couldn't, I was trying to introduce them. I was like, I'm really, really excited you're here. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I started a different video series just on my Facebook page. And I've got, it's one-on-one -on -one and they have to, I talk about them and their book and then they have to read a chapter and then we chat. And I've done about a half a dozen of them and they're just getting more fun. They're getting more relaxed. I did a really nice one today with Julia Kelly. She's coming out with um, The Last Garden in England. And it's uh, it was a nice conversation. And I'm going to speak with Kate Quinn again and about her new Rose Code. And there's a, I've got a lot of stuff planned. So That's so fun. Yeah, that's why I say I think the, COVID, the silver lining for me with COVID was learning that the camera was not my enemy. And uh, if I could just deal with my own insecurities, then I would be just fine. And then mm. COVID changed everything for me with my hair color. <laughs> I decided no more dye. I'm going all silver. I'm just letting it happen. And it is what it is. And it's taken, sometimes it takes a long time to accept who you are, but then you're forced into it and it's not so bad. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like myself included, you just learn about certain things because of COVID, like you're, like you said, you're kind of forced to have to deal with it in all different aspects, whether it's work or family, like birthdays over, you know, Facebook, 
you know, video with friends. I mean, Jen and I had a picnic with one of our other friends, Peter, you know, on Facebook and it was just, you just learn to deal with it and any way that you can find some fun with it. It's yeah. There's gotta be silver lining. I've been thinking about that a lot the last week and I filmed um, like a burlesque cooking show where another performer and I over zoom taught like the the viewers a, a recipe for a cocktail but I had to work immediately afterwards so we did the video and we were silly and we had co- cheers and we had our cocktail and and turned off the video and I finished the cocktail and I went into my room to get changed because I was wearing like a corset and stuff and a bit tipsy and <laughs> like <laughs> I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror with these fake eyelashes and hair, uh, you know, everything. And I, but I laughed and I was like, but if I wanted to do this, we can do these. These are things we can do. I'm not saying I'm going to wear the corset to my zoom meeting for work, (laughs) but I am saying there's days that I don't have to have meetings and I can be, I can wear a princess dress downstairs into my or your pajamas, or you can have a dance party at, at on your break, or you can, I mean, there's so many things. And I understand, I don't, I don't want to be a jerk. I understand how stressful this has been for so many people. And it's done a number on everybody's mental health and made us revisit and reflect and all kinds of stuff. But it also, like the level of gratitude I, I felt this last week, just realizing that we're very quick to, to complain about what we don't have. And sometimes it's, it's stuff we don't even access Anyway, I have a lot of friends who are like, oh, I can't travel. I can't go skiing. I can't. And I'm like, you don't ever do those things anyway. (laughs) What are you talking about? Like, can't even go out. I'm like, you never come out. You never leave the house. You stay home and watch TV every night. What are you talking about? Your life has not changed. I understand it has changed because these are scary times and the uncertainty and there is a horrible, deadly virus out there. But I'm just saying, you know, it has definitely also opened my eyes to not just like, oh, if we ever have normalcy again, I'm going to do all the things I love and not take them for granted, but also, okay, but which of those things can I be doing now? Like instead of like here in my house, maybe it seems silly, but it's, it's not. And I don't know, like you said, your daughters are upstairs eating all the dinner without you, which we'll let you go have some of really soon. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, These things are, you know, these are really valuable, amazing things that we do still have. And I don't know, it's, that's been on my mind a lot for sure. And I actually, I have a story about that that's been bugging me a little bit. I don't know if you've seen it on Instagram or wherever. There was a billboard that somebody shared and has been shared a lot that said 2020 has been tough, but it was nothing like 1914 to 1918 or 1939 to 1945. Mm -hmm. And it's true, right? It says nothing not even close, but I posted it once and somebody said she disagreed with me that this was a really difficult year because we were not allowed to be with each other and we were separate and we, but to me, this is, um, yes, it's very inconvenient and it's been very difficult for people that were getting sick and, and that we're losing people. But if you think back to, and it has a lot to do with writing historical fiction and, and researching history, But if you look back at what these people had and what we have, if this had happened back then with the Spanish flu, nobody was going to be Zooming each other. And and people were dying all over the place. And we have medicine. We have things that will save us. And to compare what we have 
now with what we have then. I was just really shocked when somebody said, no, this year is obviously worse than any of that time. And I thought, you need to read more books. I hope you just responded with a link to where to get your books. You can see it on Instagram because I was like, you know, you're entitled to your opinion because I never want to tick anybody off. But, you know, no. Um, (laughs) The new book that I'm working on, a lot of it had to do with the Canadians that were stuck in the Japanese POW camps. Mm. Many of these men who were forgotten by the rest of Canada had shrunken down to 80 pounds. And, you know, and, and the Japanese never agreed to the Geneva Convention and they did anything and everything to these men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, you can't say that anybody would be doing that right now. You can't even compare it. So that was kind of bugging me, but I was as gentle as I could be. And if she's listening right now, I'm really sorry, but I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but we're Canadian. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, not sorry. That's it. <laughs> It was so funny. Um, this weekend, I got to um, have a virtual book retreat with the uh, Girly Book Club. Yes. And so I got to sit in with uh, Kate Quinn and listen to her. And she was talking about how she had made a post on Instagram about her Zoom outfit, which she demonstrated. She's like, I have a nice blue top, but it does not clash with my blue wall. And I have a statement <laughs> necklace. And she's like, but I will not sit up because I, you will see my <laughs> jogging pants and she's <laughs> so it was just great she, you know I think everybody's you know everybody's having fun and it was just great that she shared that at the yeah uh, yeah and again that's one thing that we've got now that we never could have done and with I've been doing book clubs I'm probably doing 15 book clubs a month which is nothing like the, the old days like now that it's available and it's it's a lot of time and a lot of work but it's so much fun and I'm meeting people that I never would have been traveling anywhere near their homes I've been in Texas this month you know I've been all over the place and I'd never be there if it weren't for COVID so that's how I look at it yeah plus you can make faces at people behind your mask and nobody that's the thing yes I get to sing in the grocery store without anybody really knowing (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a nice voice like Jen so I can't (laughs) They don't know it's you. They're just like, who is that? Cool. <laughs> You're like, I know, right? <laughs> Make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to tell us a bit about your new book that's uh, coming out in the new year? Sure. Um, it, it did a big zigzag. So you have to stick with me for this. Um, <laughs> it started out as I wanted to write about the largest ethnic riot in Canadian history which was the Christie Pitts riot. It happened in August, August 16th, 1933. And um, in those days, Toronto was known as Toronto the Good. It was run by the Irish Protestant community, which was very strict and they had lots of rules and they, everybody did what you were told. There was like, they padlocked the swing sets on Sundays and they covered up the windows so that you couldn't go window shopping on Sundays. So it was, everything was very strict. And so they called themselves Toronto the Good which was very ironic because the amount of anti-Semitism that was going on at that time was inconceivable. Like there were, um, in the store windows, they had signs that said, um, no Jews allowed or help wanted Jews need not apply. Down on the Toronto beaches, they had a sign that said no dogs or Jews. And they had gangs of, um, gangs of boys that were, um, they called themselves swastika club. And they would go around and they would 
clean the streets and keep everything clear. But the, um, this led to like the, the Jewish people had their own gangs too. So things were just coming to a boil and getting more and more violent. But this was during the Great Depression when what people really needed was some good free entertainment. And the big draw in Toronto at that point was baseball. And so on this night in August, there was one team called the Harvard Playground that was mostly Jewish players. And the other team was from St. Peter's, which obviously was not. And at the end of the game, somebody unfurled a huge swastika banner and everybody lost it. And there was a, the, the riot that ensued after that were 10,000 people fighting for four hours, bubbling over into the streets, um, which is interesting to think about right now because 10,000 people fighting for four hours and there were maybe 10 minor injuries and there was no damage done anywhere that was just these very minor injuries. It was very interesting though, because like some of the Jewish boys that saw this going on, there's, there's um, stories about them getting on their bikes and riding as fast as they could to the Jewish areas of Toronto and saying, this is happening. And so all the men would jump into trucks, dump trucks and stuff and race down and join the fight. So that's how my book was supposed to go. <laughs> <laughs> but, we're like all engaged we're like yes tell us more I don't <laughs> wait to read this it's literally one third of the book because um my main character his name is max dreyfus and he's uh he's jewish and he's a doctor and he's brilliant but he's also determined to go to war and uh, when I was when I sent him into war, I thought, okay, well, we could look at DF, we could look at D-Day, we could look at all the different things, and but they've been done, and I've done them in other books, and I wanted to learn something new, so I went to the Pacific Theater because I knew nothing, and that's where I discovered the Battle of Hong Kong, which was the only battle in World War II history that was 100% a failure, and it was uh, about. Um, almost 2000 Canadian boys, men that were sent, um, they were sent to garrison duty in Hong Kong. They were just supposed to guard, um, to guard down there. They were never supposed to be in combat and they were not trained and they were not well armed. So they were just gonna be there to do the little job. Um, and they were told that yes, it's possible the Japanese could be trying to come into Hong Kong because they've been fighting with China since 1937 but they might come into, into uh, Hong Kong, but chances are they won't. There's only like 5,000 of them and the Brits will hold them off. The Brits have all this stuff. And then Pearl Harbor happened. And on the very same day, they turned around and hit Hong Kong as well. They hit Manila and Hong Kong and they were all into the Far East and the Canadians were left. They had to run. They, they had to... Um, retreat into the mountains of Hong Kong Island where they had no food for weeks, two weeks, and they had no water because the Japanese took over all the water reservoir. They, these were, there were not 5,000 Japanese, there were 50,000 and these were hardened, basically, you know, samurai type men that believed in the Bushido code and never surrender. And, um, and it came down to, the, there were 290 of them killed in battle, the Canadians. Um, and the rest, the reason it was called a failure, and it was, was because the rest of them were taken as POWs, and we forgot about them. Nobody ever talks about them, and they spent three years and eight months in hell, and uh, it's, it's something that 
needs to be talked about again. And there's only five of these men left alive these day, today. And here's a cool little fun fact. <laughs> After I finished writing it, I find out that my daughter's boyfriend, um, his great uncle is one of the five still surviving. What? Like, Isn't that wild? He said, oh yeah, my great uncle's over there. What? what? Yeah. You never thought to mention this. And uh, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I'm going to. He's 97 years old and I can't wait to hear what he what he thinks of it. So, so that's yeah. And that's incredible. It's, yeah. So it was a very small world. And I always feel like there's a reason for, for why I write what I do. And, and connecting with him is going to be very cool. Um, the, the, the book is called Letters Across the Sea. And that it has a lot to do with miscommunication and... Uh, he is, Max is Jewish and the girl across the street, Molly is Irish Protestant. And that's a no-no to have a relationship between Jewish and non-Jewish. And, um, but you can't help love, right? So, um, so all, everything was against them the whole time and things go on. Um, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but um, it's much Just more- Read positive. it to us. It's fine. We'll get caught. Yeah. Once upon a time, there's, there's um, a lot of- it's a lot more complex, a lot more layers, and I worked really hard on this book, so I hope you like it. And when does it come out? Um, April 27th. April 27th. And uh, yeah, we shared the, the cover the other day. It's very pretty, and I don't have a big poster yet, but I'm going to try and get one just like, like that one. Um, <laughs> and uh, interestingly, the U.S. has bought it as well. Um, they didn't buy uh, the Forgotten Home Child, but they did make up a huge percentage of my sales, which was unexpected considering it's Canadian history. Mm -hmm. So they, they've bought into the next one and they, they have a different cover, which I'm revealing next week. So oh, this, fun. Um, I, I don't know why, but they have different things for different markets and it's very pretty too. You'll see it. I think Wednesday, I'm going to put it out. Oh, nice. So what have you ladies done in the last week that either goes under crazy or goes under creative or both? I think for me, it was this planning of my, my birthday reading thing. Cause it's pretty crazy. <laughs> I should Such be, a good crazy though. <laughs> I should like just be sitting and with wine and not thinking on my birthday. <laughs> But I think it's going to be nice. I'm excited about it. And I don't, like I said, I, I think crazy and creative go together. I don't think you have to be one or the other, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> you, Jen? Um, when my kids were little, I used to do a lot of my creative genius in the bathtub. I'm assuming I'm not the only person who becomes a genius underwater. <laughs> <laughs> And I would yell for the kids to come bring a pen and a paper and they would sit on the toilet and like write down all the ideas I was having or the grocery list or like both or whatever. And when they took notes, they were very concise and I would go back and refer to them later and I would be able to understand what it was they were referring to. I, on the other hand, like to just write myself notes like man with the black hat. And then I find it six months later and I'm like, what did I want myself to do with this? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, anyway, so one day on Instagram, not that long ago, a comedian, Sarah Quinn, who is very funny, posted a story or a post of herself in her bathtub. I think it was like just her toes or something. I think the point of her story was that she was in the bath relaxing or her feet hurt. I don't know what it was, but my eye zeroed in on, on this little thing in the background on the wall 
And I messaged her immediately, Sarah Quinn, how do you have a, a notepad in your shower? And wow, what, what is this? And she wrote back and she said, well, it's water resistant and it comes with this pencil and you can write notes and you just keep it with, it has a little sticky guys and it sticks on the wall. Oh, write stuff in the shower as it comes to you. And <laughs> so I went online and I found this magical thing and I stuck it on my shower wall and uh, I had a great idea for a song and the thing is when you have a great idea for a song it makes more sense to like sing it into a voice memo because the note on my bathroom wall right now and I'm not the only person who showers in there so you can imagine this is not the most positive message that someone might get when they step into the shower is don't hate me because I'm better than you. <laughs> I think I'll just leave it there to make sure. I like it. We don't want anyone too high on their pedestal around here. No, 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 don't. Yeah, I don't remember the song, but I'm really happy that I have the notepad so I can write these, <laughs> these notes to myself so I don't forget my genius ideas. That's good. How about you, Megan? Uh, well, like I said, this weekend I had the Girly Book Club uh, over the weekend. So they had uh, different publishers. Uh, showing which books were coming out. One publisher was really neat saying, if you liked uh, this show on Netflix, you'd really like these books. So they did like three, four of those. So I thought that was interesting. Then there was different, uh, there was a psychological thriller panel, historical fiction panel. Um, Kate Quinn had her own. And then there was a literary agent um, that sat down and took everybody's questions and stuff. And then I won a one-on-one -on -one with her. So I'm like super nice. excited. Yes. So I get to have all the details later this week. So that was my creative. The crazy part was um, in between each like workshop or seminar, there was 15 minutes. So within these 15 minutes, I would rush upstairs to our kitchen because we had torn up the floor and and now we're down to the original hardwood, but it has a whole bunch of glue on it. So 10 minutes of my time of my 15, while my water's boiling, I would have a, a steel wool and acetone and I'd be scrubbing and then wiping it up, rinsing, get my tea, run back downstairs. <laughs> so nice, like good, like, you know, 12 minute shots of that. <laughs> that was, that was my crazy in between my crazy. <laughs> Like I can get this done. Don't worry. And I did, I did it uh, over the weekend. So okay. so much nicer. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us today, Genevieve. It was so nice meeting you. Great to meet you too. And you can just email us if you want to tell us who your favorite child is, like not out loud. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I have to make sure nobody's listening. <laughs> oh. It was really, really, really great having this chat with you and so informative. Who knew? I learned new stuff. Very That's exciting. Me too. I'm really looking forward to reading your books. Thank you. I'm Thank looking you. forward to your birthday too. Yes. Well, December 8th, that's going to be it. So we'll okay. see. if our listeners follow you on Facebook and where on Instagram, what's, is it just your name on Instagram or do you have a different title? They're all Jen Graham author. Perfect. Great. So they can stay posted. Well, thank you both for having me. This is my first podcast and it was very fun. Well, thank we you so much. Are very honored to have been your first podcast. It was really, really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Have thank a good you. evening. Good night. Thank you. Bye.
stripper pole! <laughs> Please get a stripper pole with me so we can start our fantasy stripper league. Can you just introduce our fucking guest? I don't know how, I get all nervous. Just look at me. Look at me! <laughs> Megan, look at me right now. <laughs> <laughs> what did you? You're gonna have to edit so much.